This is ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Renee Allen, and with me today is Dr. Victoria Green, renowned breast cancer researcher and OBGYN clinician. Dr. Green is my mentor. She trained me at Emory University School of Medicine, where she is an associate professor in the Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Dr. Green, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Today we will be discussing the latest diagnostic and treatment advances in treating breast cancer in American women. Dr. Green, the United States Preventative Services Task Force has certain recommendations in addition to the ACOG recommendations for screening. Can you discuss this a little bit further? Definitely. Very, very interesting that they're both actually looking at the exact same data and just coming up with different ways or different perspectives or different ideas as to what's most important. The United States Task Force recently, in about 2009, recommended a change from the general annual mammography, which is what we've been doing for quite some time, to one in which we're biennial or every other year. Now, they're not uh, unusual in the sense that there are other countries, such as Canada, who has a recommendation, I believe, of about a year and a half between their mammograms as well, so it's not unusual. But looking at the same data, ACOG recommends, along with the American Cancer Society, American College of Radiology, and multiple other organizations, they recommend to continue with the annual screening mammogram rather than moving to the biennial mammogram. Additionally, ACOG also recommends the continued screening of the women between the ages of 40 and 49, which has been somewhat of a controversy. Uh, The um, uh, United States Task Force, on the other hand, has recommended not not to screen them, and that double negative was on purpose. They're not saying not to screen them, but they're saying to not routinely screen them, but in each scenario to discuss with the woman based on her goals and objectives as to whether this is an appropriate tool for her. This is very interesting. Dr. Green, how have you been able to navigate the difference between these two recommendations from these two organizations? What do you do in your current practice? Very good point, because we're all working with other specialists. So I have internal medicine and family medicine practitioners who usually follow the United States Task Force recommendations who are referring patients for other non-breast-related conditions, and that topic does come up. I usually have spoken to those uh, physicians in advance, because we often work in a similar environment that I have to, the ability to communicate with them to let us know, you know, what, what are we thinking, what are we focusing on, and uh, what do you want me to do in that type of scenario. And those that are being followed by other practitioners for their GYN care, I allow them to make those determinations and take care of what that individual has uh, been referred to me for. Uh, whereas those who I am following, I follow the ACOG recommendations. Now, even when we consider those, we have to remember that each of the tools that we're talking about does have limitations. When we look at the data, the American College of OBGYN, as well as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, and many other cancer organizations, focus on the fact that even in the age group between 40 and 49, that we are able to reduce their mortality. And in using the United States Task Force data, we're reducing it about the same amount as in the 50 to 59-year-old age group. So they both are benefiting from a reduction in mortality by the use of annual mammograms. But we also know in that same group, 
because of density in the breast tissue, sometimes the inability to detect lesions, difficulties in finding the mass within that type of breast tissue, that that group in the 40 to 49-year-old age group is going to have more biopsies, more biopsies that are not necessarily associated with cancer and what people are now considering to be unnecessary biopsies. And that's almost double what we see in the older age group. So the United States Task Force is balancing the limitations that we already have with the tool, the benefits that we have with regards to the reduction in mortality, with that concern over unnecessary biopsies. ACOG, on the other hand, is saying because we do have a benefit for that age group, 40 to 49, again, very similar to the 50 to 59-year-old age group, that that organization focuses on the ability to detect more of the cancers. But again, looking at the same data, you can come out on uh, different sides. Let's move on to one of the hot topics that's been in the media recently with regards to Angelina Jolie and gene testing. Can you speak a little bit about breast cancer susceptibility gene testing that's available in the United States? Definitely. This is, as as you say, uh, uh, clearly Angelina Jolie has been a benefit for us in the breast cancer realm when she decided on her own, based on her risk and her BRCA positivity, that's BRCA breast cancer uh, susceptibility gene, that she was going to undergo a bilateral mastectomy in order to reduce her risk of breast cancer. Many in the community have had to make similar decisions based on that type of information, but when she came forward and this was placed in the press, this opened the eyes of many physicians as well as many patients as far as the options that are available to those who may be BRCA positive. It is important to realize, though, that we don't recommend testing for all women, but simply those who are at significantly increased risk based on their family history. Specifically with regards to Angelina Jolie, she had a very strong history of ovarian cancer, uh, I believe in her mother and an aunt, if I'm not mistaken. And those are the individuals that have significantly increased risk that we recommend testing. And then that is an option that's available for them. Unfortunately, in many communities, uh, this test may not be available because it's either often not covered by the insurance in the community or has many restrictions, even if it is covered. It is a very expensive test. And so we want to ensure that those who are eligible have availability for it and continue to advocate for those individuals within the legislature to allow the insurances to cover it. Thank you, Dr. Green. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Renee Allen. I am speaking with Dr. Victoria Green, renowned breast cancer researcher and OBGYN clinician. Dr. Green is currently an associate professor in the Department of Gynecology and Obstetrics at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Green, would you be able to discuss the differences in mortality and even diagnosis with regards to African-American women versus Caucasian women? And if there is a difference, why you think there may be a difference? Very, very important question, and you are exactly right. If you look at the incidence of breast cancer, Caucasian women have a higher incidence of breast cancer or number of cases in their population versus mortality, which is greater in the African-American community. And even if you look at other minorities, they are actually only about half of African-American. One would think that they might be between, say, the African-American rate and the Caucasian rate, and they are actually very low in other populations, including Hispanic and 
African Asian women. And so we often look at uh, why that might be. We know that African American women, although the incidence uh, overall is greater in Caucasian women, those with premenopausal breast cancer or breast cancer prior to going through the menopause, that risk is greater in African American women. We know that inflammatory breast cancer, which is one of the most aggressive forms of breast cancer, is actually seen at greater numbers in African American women. Some believe, of course, that there may be a genetic component. Because we have a greater likelihood of inflammatory breast cancer in African-American women, uh, they've compared that to even the BRCA gene that we were discussing before in cancers that are seen in that population. And what we're seeing is a significant similarity between some of the genetic issues in inflammatory as well as in the BRCA-positive population and wondering if there's some genetic susceptibility or some specific biomarkers or features which may be playing a role in that higher mortality amongst African-American women. When you look at access to care, which was the initial concern that African-American women may not have access and though therefore they are reaching uh, out for care at a later stage, maybe at stage three or stage four, versus the stage one or stage two that we prefer the patient to be seen in. But again, once you focus on that rate in other minorities, which may also have decreased access to care, one would think that you would see a similar mortality, and we're not seeing that. So we know that access to care may be an important component, but it is not the entire component. And so I think that it's very important that programs such as yours, and I appreciate and applaud you and and your expertise as well as your organization in getting this information uh, because it is critical out to the providers as well as to the patients as far as what is available, what are the risk and limitations of what we have available, and then with shared decision-making principles for the providers and the patients to then determine what is the best plan of action for the individual patient. Dr. Green, would you be able to touch on recommendations for breast uh, awareness versus breast self-exam, and what is the difference? You're right. Uh, many of the guidelines have now changed to a breast awareness versus in the prior guidelines, prior to about, say, about 2000, 2001, it was all breast self-examination. And breast self-examination is a systematic evaluation of the breast, a certain pattern of search on the breast tissue, extending, you know, to certain anatomical areas. So it was very systematic and very stepwise in order to assess the breast tissue. And now organizations are changing, especially those who are not high risk. And so I want to stress that all the information that we've discussed prior has all been in the non-high risk. And some of those guidelines are changing based on, say, the high risk individual. But in the non-high risk individual, now looking at simply an awareness. Uh, What is the tissue like? You know, a lot of women have the fibrocystic condition. So what is your normal tissue like? Uh, Where do you generally have your discomfort? Uh, what changes have you noted in the breast tissue since the last cycle or since your last exam? As part of that awareness, though, we're also looking at the risk factors. What are your risk factors? Uh, Have any additional family members been diagnosed with breast cancer uh, since your last visit? So it's really an awareness of your risk, which is based on changes within the breast tissue and not necessarily the seven-step systematic exam that we had before. Also changes in your risk factors, additional people who may be diagnosed with breast cancer, and then also an awareness of uh, what's available to you if any of those things had changed. So it's uh, really just a lack of this systematic nature 
and more simply of an awareness, which may in certain cases, especially in our high-risk individuals, actually include an exam. ACOG specifically indicates in their awareness uh, information that it may include for specific individuals an exam. So you asked me before, what do I do in my practice? And so what, what I will often, if a patient asks about an exam, I will explain what an exam is. I will explain what we're looking for. I will explain the anatomy behind the exam and how can they feel because we have models where they can feel what normal tissue feels like, what their tissue feels like, so we can go into a very detailed assessment of what an exam entails. But if the patient is not asking with regards to evaluation of her breast exam, then we will more discuss the awareness, awareness of changes, awareness of what happened since the last exam. And the reason why this is important or the reason why it appears to have changed is there was data that came out with regards to specifically self-breast examination, which did not show a reduction in mortality in those who had been explained, who had had a discussion about self-breast examination. That lack of decrease in mortality, though, um, was sort of flavored by the fact that we only discussed breast self-examination with the individual. There was no guarantee that those individuals actually perform breast self-examination. And so within that study, they specifically mentioned that we have no idea, and I believe the exact verbiage is we don't know if an individual performed an exam systematically that we would not be able to decrease mortality. All we know is that by discussing it with an individual that we are not decreasing breast cancer mortality. And we also have to look at that data, very good data, very good numbers as well, but we also have to realize that it was performed one group in Russia, one group in Shanghai, China, which automatically has a lower risk of breast cancer and breast cancer mortality than we have in uh, the United States. And so if we took that same study and then performed it here in the United States where we have a greater incidence of breast cancer, would we see a difference? And those are issues that we don't know. So we're using information from other populations and trying to analogize them to our current population, which is all we can do. But we have to realize that there are some limitations with that data. And also we know that by reducing the likelihood possibly of developing breast cancer, we have to remember that we have I believe it's 2.6 million breast cancer survivors. Is there an improvement possibly in the quality of life of a breast cancer survivor? So although the study only looked at a reduction in mortality, are we possibly improving the quality of life even for those who are possibly not dying from the breast cancer but living with breast cancer, possibly detecting their disease at an earlier stage where they can have a reduced invasiveness of the surgery? Uh, and that's information that we just don't have. We are having newer studies that are now looking at quality of life in addition to mortality, and those are the studies that I think we need to look at. But currently, um, even ACOG as well as the National Comprehensive Cancer Network both focus on a breast awareness, although they indicate that breast self-examination may be helpful, especially in the high-risk group. And the United States Task Force is specifically saying that based on the information, we have insufficient information to say that the breast self-examination has any benefit in reducing mortality, specifically focusing on that group. But it's interesting even with the, breast self, with the task force recommendations. In 2001, they actually said we had insufficient information for both the performance as well as teaching of breast self-examination. Whereas when they changed their recommendation in 2009, they specifically say that we don't recommend the teaching 
of self-breast examination because the studies didn't look at the performance of breast self-examination, only the teaching. And so when you look at the change in the guidelines, it is very specific, and no one knows at this point whether actually performing breast self-examination will reduce mortality because that's not what the study looked at. I think that everything that you just spoke on is very important information to get across to our listeners, and it's timely since October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Dr. Green, what is the newest in research that you see in the next two to three years with regards to breast cancer research that we should be expecting? We're getting a lot of information uh, with regards to dietary issues, uh, how can we help to prevent breast cancer, a lot of information coming with regards to other preventions for breast cancer. We know that uh, tamoxifen and raloxifene have been approved to reduce the risk of breast cancer, um, and there are other things that we can do. Uh, are there behavioral changes, dietary changes that we can look at? A little bit's going to change with regards to the research as well. In order to look at the risk of breast cancer, one has to study individuals for at least 10, preferably even longer years. And now they're looking at biomarkers and um, are there other things uh, such as the chemicals or the proteins within the cancers or within the tissue that we can look at so that we don't necessarily have to follow the individual for 10 to 20 years to find some benefit. I'm sure you're also hearing the information with regards to mammographic breast density and some of the laws that are changing in uh, many states with regards to breast density. And so we are going to hear more about that and some of the imaging modalities that have been used to study that as well. So a lot of information coming forward, and we're, we're going to need to keep up with this on a day-to-day basis just to make sure that we're providing that appropriate information to our patients and ensuring that they're receiving the best health care that we can provide. Dr. Green, briefly, is there anything that you haven't covered that you would like our listeners to know about breast cancer research? Definitely. I I think the data is coming. The data that we have is there. I think it's most important that we realize the benefits and limitations of what we have. But more importantly, I I really haven't discussed the shared decision-making principles of simply looking not only at informed consent, providing the limitations, the risks, the alternatives with the patient, but also looking at the patient's goals and objectives. And what is she interested in? And has she had a mother who's deceased from breast cancer who is more likely to want to have a mammogram? Uh, versus someone who maybe doesn't have that within their history. So again, I think that because we do not have a tool that is 100%, that shared decision-making principles are going to be very important in getting that information across to the patient so that we can ensure that not only we are satisfied with the health care that we're providing, but also that the patient is satisfied and going to therefore be more compliant with what we're recommending. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Victoria Green, for joining us today. Dr. Green, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to to speak to you. I really appreciate that. I am your host, Dr. Renee Allen, and you've been listening to ReachMD. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com.